No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, a podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me on the program this week is counselor and therapist and uh, Bush Fellowship recipient, Brenda Hartman. Brenda is a person I was introduced to through some mutual connections, and she does work with people who have been given a terminal diagnosis or people who are walking on their journey towards death and I just had a million questions for her and really enjoyed the first time I ever got to speak with her so I uh, <laughs> begged and pleaded as much as I could to convince her to come over and uh, come down to the basement and talk with me at length about these uh, topics and she was kind enough to grant me the time. I had an absolute blast talking with her. I learned so much about uh, what she does, how she does it, what her background is, uh, additionally how I face some of the things that she faces on a regular basis, some things that I had never considered. And really, it was just a really enjoyable conversation that I am happy to be reporting that I'm going to just split this up into two episodes. There's so much that we cover that I was able to really kind of delineate that this first episode with Brenda is going to be talking about her professional work and what she does as a counselor and how she helps people and what she's learned along her journey. And then as we get into the second half, it'll be a bit more about her personal experience. Uh, She actually is a cancer survivor and is, uh, she was able to share some amazing stories about what she went through her own uh, experience with death and dying uh, twice. As a matter of fact, it was amazing stuff. And I really I, I I could sit here and give a preface for it, but it's going to do no justice. She's just so much fun to talk with. You can hear right off the beginning, she says, let's play. And it's just like, ooh, she's like a gunslinger. Let's do this. Uh, a lot of fun to talk with. So thank you, Brenda, so much. If you have any questions about her or would like to find out more, you could go to her website, www.healingthroughlife.com. That is uh, her website with all of her contact information and her background and history on there. Um, otherwise, I will have her information in my uh Twitter and Instagram pages as well. Um, again, if you've got any feedback, questions, comments, concerns, reach out at uh, Gmail. You can do your dead two at gmail.com or find me at your dead two on Twitter and Instagram. Happy to hear what you're thinking about, what you're taking away from this, or what you would like to hear discussed more. Maybe there's something that I've kind of uh, avoided since the beginning that you want to hear more about, and I'd be happy to hear it. Um, beyond that, thank you for listening. I as always, I'm just amazed that anybody would take time out of the day to hear uh, such a morbid conversation <laughs> and such a, a head-on, direct questioning of what happens when we die. Who are we? What what does this mean for our existence? So I am uh, I'm grateful that anybody listens. So thank you, as always, and enjoy. Any questions or concerns before we dive right in? No. Okay. Let's play. All right. So I appreciate it. So uh, with me today, I have Brenda Hartman. Say hello. Hi, John. (laughs) How are you? I'm really great. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough. So if you would be so kind, I have had the pleasure of talking with you before, but what would you say you do? You are a therapist, correct? Or that is one limited facet of what you do? That's one part of who I am. Yes, let's see. I'm a therapist, and I typically say that how, what I do in that role is I specialize in working with people with life-threatening and life-ending diagnoses. 
and help people walk to their death, clinically speaking, I guess. Um, I also am in the process of coming to a conclusion of my formal participation in a Bush Fellowship, and that was focused on learning from people um, about their belief systems from a variety of cultural, spiritual, and religious perspectives, what, what they believe about end of life, their needs are, and what they think believe happens at the end of their life. Is there a particular point or thrust to it that you are hoping to find a particular conclusion, or is it more so you want to dig into the matter and find what you can to share with the world? What has been, is it as simple as a binary thing, or what have you found from it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what I thought was going to happen and where I am are very distinctly different things. Uh, what started it in, in my many years of working with people and helping them prepare to die, what I have found is a gap is, is in the healthcare professionals' training. They're not trained to help people prepare for end of life. So I wanted, and, and another thing is that I saw that cultural beliefs, re religious differences, and spiritual beliefs weren't a part of how they're trained, which is critical when somebody's facing their end of life. So not only was the conversation not happening, it wasn't being respectful of any differences. And so I wanted to go and learn those differences that and how to be respectful of them. And then I was hoping to articulate that in, in um, healthcare training programs and then with current healthcare professionals. So that's happening somewhat. Um, my <laughs> part of my hesitation has been since spending a lot of time interviewing amazing people and their openness about their belief systems. A couple things happened. There was one thing that everybody said to me, no matter what their belief system. Which is? They can only speak for themselves. Every, which is cool. Yeah. Every single person prefaced that way. On one hand, their individuality of the experience, does that speak to a universal nature of what they're going through, that everybody feels the subjective personal experience? Or that how do you take that? So I so let me let me quote, but I won't be able to do it verbatim. Kind of <laughs> quote, <laughs> a minister that I interviewed, and she was absolutely amazing. She said it very eloquently. She talked about here in my form of religion that she's the minister in. This is what is said, is what is needed, and you know very much. Hmm, I don't know if dogma is a negative word <laughs> to everybody or if we, whatever. If we keep it with a lowercase d instead of a capitalized <laughs> d, does that help? Well, maybe that? that helps. But you know, she's like, these are the things that are supposed to happen and to say, right? You mm -hmm. know, do these certain prayers or whatever. And so, so she goes. So I, she said, I can tell you those things. And then she said, I can tell you my experiences with people that have really stretched my belief system. 
and then people that were very were very um, much ease in how they walked. Okay, mm. and then she said, but she goes, I know that when I get up to preach every morning, Sunday morning, um, that every person there is going to have a different perspective and a different need, and that they're all influenced by different perspectives and their experiences. Yeah, that's been something that I can tell intrinsically I would have concerns about over preaching or giving very strict advice on. Mm -hmm. The idea of me having one understanding of what I'm saying, my my own perception of my message, and then how the other person interprets it. There's something lost there. It's never going to be completely one-to-one. And when I was in a previous life in mortgage banking, that was always kind of a concern that I had of, is this going to be a net benefit for somebody to refinance their house? And for me, in that circumstance, I had hard numbers to look at. I had formulas where I could say, you know what? They're recouping the closing costs within this many months, so therefore it is clearly a benefit that they do this. Whereas that personal connection, that ambiguity, I'm tantalized and fascinated by the idea of something ethereal there. Mm -hmm. That even before getting to the idea of spirituality, that there's something like if I asked you to think of an elephant, that elephant doesn't exist, but what I'm picturing is going to be slightly different than what you're picturing. Absolutely, because I'm seeing a baby elephant. Okay, and I just, I pictured a big old gray elephant. Okay, so that's, this is why. For me, part of the fascination of why I want to do this is because I like looking into this, and it's fascinating for me to get people's perspectives on these things, and you are somebody who has chosen through life circumstances and what both fate and chaotic nature of the world has brought you to this this path, this career, this um, dharma. What's I mean, what's the word for not necessarily calling, but what your path laid out before you is that is directly looking into the thing that everybody wants to avoid, you know? Right. That's very, very true. Were you met at all with resistance to it when you came to this focus? Did people in your life have reservations about this? You make it sound like that's past tense. <laughs> yeah, that betrays my bias, yeah. I assume anybody who is a, a single hour older than me, I assume that they've somehow gotten things figured out and that all uncertainty is in the past. So the possibility of others having uncertainty now, like that's that shows my insecurity. I, I don't think – I think people are afraid of talking about death. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter um, – Generally speaking, how old. The older a person gets, the more um, accepting, I think, because they've had to experience it more with family and friends. True. Uh, That was something that I think we first talked briefly about when we met, Mm -hmm. that I am still in a phase of my life where I've shifted from all of my friends getting married and having parties. Now they're having kids. Eventually, I'll enter that phase where it's more common for parents and then family and spouses start passing away and it becomes a real prominent issue and I hadn't ever really considered that it was kind of a glass shattering moment when a friend of mine presented that to me I hadn't considered that whole shift I've also spoken with family who are simply uh, older than I am and they've said you know it's uh, it's not as fun or novel as a concept for us because we're a little closer to it so it's surprising for me to find 
that there are people I'm, I guess I don't know why I'm, I'm already trying to contradict you because that just seems like I'm just spouting off about my own experiences. I'm just, I'm fascinated by how even as they progress towards it, what could be a more accepting nature of it, there are still people who really don't, I don't know, like warding it off with the evil eye. Does that make any sense at all? You know, I had a conversation with a woman this week. Maybe it was last week. I don't do linear time very well. <laughs> and she is consciously walking toward her death mm. and she's pretty young and um, one of the things she said to me was um, you know when we were talking about this in theory Brenda me getting ready to die <laughs> that was easier than now that it's super close yeah and so I've had the gift of all of these years of doing this walk with people and hearing them and listening to them and, um, you know, all ages, all ages of people and a lot of young people and watching how they change and their insights and what they're learning. So I don't know. I guess I really think the more that we promote this conversation just like you're doing, that we can circle back to when death wasn't so scary. Yeah. That... <laughs> How far back do you want to look for that? What is your... In my mind, I start to think back, like, well, I mean, early 1900s, late 1800s? I do, or you think more back to, like, a genetic root of who we are and how quickly we used to... No, I'm thinking about when we were more of an agrarian society. Okay. Because death was a part of everyday life, living when when the vast majority of people lived on farms, mm -hmm. right? Animals died, animals were slaughtered, children died. We talked about that before, and mm -hmm. how not that people are like, "Yay, the cow is dead!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got more kids on the way. We'll be fine. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's not that. It's not that there wasn't grief. There wasn't this that medicalization that, you know, we've got this false expectation that if you go and see a physician, they're going to take care of you and they're going to fix you. Looking through the information that's available on your website, which is, by the way, www.healingthroughlife.com. There we go. Uh, thank you very much. I didn't want to forget that before the end. Um, <laughs> thank you. So looking through there, particularly, there was an article that um, you referenced throwing clay on a pottery wheel, mm -hmm. that the physician works the outside and you help work the inside, that that medicalization, and that was something that really, really hooked me when we first talked, that the idea of, oh, right, there's this huge gap that although there's the medicalization of the process of dying, death itself is still not a solved problem. And it may never be able to be solved. That might be inherently misunderstanding the problem, but the idea that doctors are just dealing with the outside not in a dismissive sense but they just that's what they're there to fix are you finding in your experience that there's you can see here how much i pause when i'm gathering <laughs> do you find that there's much in your experience to speak to that gap have doctors at all have there been changes in the medical profession in the last 20 years that they're able to address that more or are they are the branches kind of deviating the further time goes 
Oh, they're acknowledging now. There was a very important book that was written by Atul Gwande, a physician. It's called Being Mortal. Okay. And he talked about never being trained. And he talked about the importance of how, well, how do we talk to people and how do we, we as physicians, noting that I'm not a physician, but in that light, talk with people when medical treatment is no longer beneficial. And that is an area that they are not trained in. And yeah. so it's very easy for them to come up with another medical treatment. And what is what I have witnessed and what's very sad is both the individual patient and their loved ones have this misconception out of hope and fear that if we do this next treatment, whatever it is, that it's going to bring the patient back to this wonderful level of life that has a good quality to it. And the medical team knows that's not true, but they don't know how to say that. And so I've been in the position many times when people say, what's happening to me? I'm the one that tells them you're dying. Oh, wow. And they're like, but wait a minute, they've got another treatment for it. You know, and so I spend a lot of time using my hands as, you know, showing them what's going up and what's going down. And, you know, all those people out there listening are wondering what I'm doing with my hands as they're moving around. It's an amazing light show. Folks can't see it at home, but there's shadow puppets, and it's an amazing thing. All of my clients will go, yep, she talks with her hands all the time. <laughs> You're in good company then. So are you really, you're having to be the one? To tell people? I have many times. To be, are you the actual breaker of the news? or are many, you somebody? I have been. You bet I have. Not and just drilling the concept home, but like, did they not tell you what stage four means? Like, Well, so I got a very funny story about that. So when I was diagnosed, um, so anyway, so after the major surgery and blah, 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 all of that kind of craziness. We're coming back to the blah, blah, blah later we on. We can. So... What I was told, because I had I was out unconscious, there was I think there was eight or ten people that had been in the family waiting room for the I don't know ten twelve hours of surgery or whatever it was. Anyway, so one of my first presentations that I was asked to do was to go and talk to a bunch of oncology nurses about the impact of cancer on a family. So what I did is I went and I interviewed all those people, and I asked them what they heard what the oncologist surgeon said. And my sister had the best line that when the oncologist said she has stage four, she thought four out of 10, not bad. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And people heard such diverse things because he, um, he the oncologist, was quoting research that I had read uh, that I I had a 5% chance of living 24 months and would not survive 24 months. And, um, and I knew that uh, going into that surgery. And so he talked about 24 months or two years. You know, he's, yeah. so some people thought, well, she'll have a rough couple of months and then it'll be good. There were other people that she's not going to live two months instead of 24 months. I mean, it was just this huge thing, and my sister thinking four out of ten's not bad. Yikes. I mean, we, when people are talking or hearing about very serious things, we all stop listening at different points because we're trying to think, what, it, what was just said to me? 
Yeah, I can point to specific examples in my own life as well where the doctor just kind of casually drops a piece of information and your mind struggles to wrap around it and suddenly you're off in the weeds trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, that can't be, I'm sorry, did they just, are we talking about, and, you know, the conversation is paused, are you there? Or can you? <laughs> you well, can... they keep talking. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we told you that. So it's like, yeah, but wait, I mean, that's one of the pieces too. I've participated in this ovarian cancer organization that's just fabulous, MOCA, for anybody that is interested to support us. They do this program that's called Survivors Teaching Students. And so I helped with this for the first 15 years until I got my fellowship. But for every third year medical student in their gynecologic rotation, there's a panel of three of us that tell our stories. And it's it's an interesting thing, you know, because we need to help them understand first that the prediction of ovarian cancer is um, you're going to die. <laughs> that is just what the prediction is in the, reading the statistics. And so to have three of us sitting in front of them uh, is kind of shocking to them. Basically, and in their world, if they're seeing this, it's a death. It, it doesn't mean that they're going to die, right? Right. And so um, I have now long since arced when I, when I say to them I was diagnosed in 1988. I used to ask, you know, how old were you in 1988? And then there was the year. It was like, well, that was the year we were born. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I don't tell them anything about my treatment anymore because it's changed so dramatically over the years. But what I talk to them about how important it is for them when they're giving this kind of information, difficult information, to sit down and look the person in their eye and touch that person. Really, just the physical contact. Right. And I tell them, and it's what, usually when I'm saying this to them, I'm crying. And I always feel good when I leave and they've all cried <laughs> because this is real. Yeah. It's a life-changing moment in that it's okay to stop and take a breath and wait for them to get caught up with you. Yeah, it's... I don't want to make anybody experience more pain, but just to know that people are sympathetic and empathetic and experiencing yeah. that moment and not just making it into a transactional thing. I right. mean, there's certainly times in life that call for the benefit of, um, who said it, that everybody needs a little bit of oblivion, that just sometimes you need to just blunt things a little bit, but mm. to share in the experience and to not deny somebody a bit of humanity, I can't imagine going through it. I haven't had a personal scare with it yet. Um, Although I suppose there's quibbles with that that I could <laughs> that I could make. I'm I'm fine. I'm perfectly healthy, and uh, people in my life are very healthy. But um, it's it's something that when uh, so past guest Kevin that you were uh, you mentioned you'd listen to some. He put forth the idea that he thinks everything that we do as people is guided by the notion that we're dying or we could die and I had never really considered similar to the glass breaking moment of I hadn't considered that I'm going to enter a phase where everybody in my life starts dying that I had always thought of it since you know my high school biology classes that reproduction would have been the driving force for what we do that 
our coding and our deep wiring would be pushed by this need, this instinctive uh, subconscious lizard brain thing of just whatever it is, mate and move on. You've got a mate to move on. And I hadn't considered that it's the notion that we are finite, that, that we might have an intrinsic element there. I can try to wrap my head conceptually around it. It's difficult and it becomes real when I try to not visualize people in my life dying, but try to understand that not only will others die, but I will die too. And the <laughs> I don't know if I'm really chasing a point here at this point that it's that's just that's where I struggle to have the rubber meet the road. You know that I can I can try to wrap my head around it, but to really see it in your face, I suppose, you know, to to look at directly in the eye is a completely different beast. Has it been? I'm going down one branch there. What I'd like to do is get back to the notion of how has there been pushback against the idea of what it is that you do? You mentioned that it wasn't just in the past, that there may still be people in your present life or in the future that find something objectionable about what you do. What do you think they find objectionable? Or is that off That's base? kind of a strong word, but hopefully. Or the individual that I, they might be uncomfortable with it. Well, I think people have a hard time understanding what I do that their first reaction is oh that'd be so sad that'd be so hard in fact I was just talking with um, I have a spiritual group that I work with and it's a woman she works in a church and does a lot of funerals right and she goes and visits, and she and I do a lot of similar things and so we were talking about self-care because I was saying that I had asked her if this is true for her because in for me, in my life right now, I'm in this place where I am walking with a number of people that are leaving, that it's kind of like there's waves. So sometimes there's a bunch and sometimes there's not many. And when there's a bunch, it's, it's, it's heavy. Um, I can feel my energy field being really pulled. Mm. And... Um, so she told me what she was doing to take care of herself. And she goes, well, what do you do to take care of yourself? And my my honest reaction to her, I guess, and to me is, you know, I don't think death is bad. I think of death as healing. I have this, you know, everybody gets their own belief system. And, and that's just made up of your own experiences, which is why it changes over time. Sure. And so... For me, having walked and seen the beauty of people as they're leaving you know, and trying to make sense of why is this 19-year-old in front of me dying or why is this you know, 30-year-old that has two little children at home, why is this person dying? You know, I was just trying to make sense of why, does this, why is this 80-year-old dying and not that one. You know, I mean, I don't know, and I don't know why I'm alive and why other people, and I didn't die. I, yeah. you know, but I'll remind you, you don't know why you're alive either. <laughs> um, <laughs> right thinking too much about it really throws me off too there's just as likely there is nothing that there is something and for me to have been here and be this person as i'm with the family that you have right i mean yeah. it's really trippy it's like why okay there's a lot of whys yeah but i see i believe that death is healing and that from the moment that we're born i'll give us day one of birth because you've held that brand new baby and they mm -hmm. glow right mm -hmm. and they're like all soul yeah, they're very new. And they glow. Yeah. And they can't hold their head up. <laughs> and, 
And then we'd stop glowing quite so much. And so then like I believe that the next day we start on a healing path. And when we've completed our healing path and we're totally healed, we leave our physical vessel. Okay. And so when I'm with people, I talk with them about what is healing. What's healing for them? And part of that is reflecting on for myself what I did when I was dying and what I what I did that was healing for me. I you know, I don't know, but it stops me from being in panic. It's like this is healing because on one whatever a person's belief system is, I believe people have a soul or a spirit or something because something happens when we go from that moment of saying a person's alive to a person's dead. Something shifts. There is some change. There is a change. Something happens. There's a lot of stories and a lot of feelings and a lot of whatever. Um, But in that separation of whatever that is, when the last exhalation occurs, as people die on the exhale, and I want to come back to that. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Please continue. Um, but when that happens, it's like, who am I to judge that that timing? I believe it's between that person's soul and their divine or their God or their Buddha or their Allah or whatever is sacred to them. That there is just like the timing of your daughter. As much as you and your wife thought you were going to be in charge of that, she, you know, there was something else going on. And so, and, and so whatever that is. You know, oddly enough, or coincidentally enough, I was reflecting this morning on how I've been able to get her out of the house for daycare because she is two and a half, so she's staunchly in the no walk away like that's what they teach her at school is just to put a hand and walk away (laughs) so okay how do I convince this little person to put on her shoes and come with me to the car and I'm finding it works much better if I don't force if I don't Mm -hmm. lay down ultimatums or this is the way it will be tough yes certainly there are times for the nuclear option where I don't like to do that but I find much more peace both for her and for me to redirect the energy Mm -hmm. um to basically not distract but you know we need to be done with this we talked about this it's right we're ready do you want to go put on your shoes no would you like to put on your socks maybe okay okay which of these socks would you like to put on left or right like just kind of what I think of is like kung fu or karate where it's like, oh, you just take the energy and just direct it back towards where we need to go of just that's how I've been trying to live my life to be more empathetically attuned to the room to be I guess you could say it's trying to be in the moment or just being aware of others. I've tried to be that for a very long time, but particularly having a little person in my life has really, really cemented that. And I would think that that similar notion of dealing with death and the dying process would be kindred, that if you try to force something, if you try to make somebody have some understanding of what's going to happen, it's going to be, you might get results, but it might be difficult. But to to approach that scenario 
certainly there would be understanding if there's feelings of panic or mm-hmm. uh, inescapable inevitableness that that feels crushing or trapping but I just feel so lucky to be a lot like this is this whole checklist of qualifiers that my 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 personal therapist reminds me you don't have to go through those every time you want to make any kind of statement that I don't have to necessarily think of like I've been born period that I survived period that I'm born in the latter half of the 20th century in a developed nation where my parents were successful that I have been healthy my whole life that like all of these things like I am grateful for all of these to be at the point that I'm at now how do I live my life and how do I accept my own inevitable demise whenever it may occur another element of it that I have no control over that lack of control has to become a measure of or a capacity through which I can live my daily life that yeah I'll have bad days like anybody else and I'll get frustrated and you know, lose my temper, but there's always the reminder of, yeah, all this is a gift. All of this, there's no guarantee on any of this. And so just that it's here, I'm trying to have that mindset as much as I can on a daily basis. And what it kind of brings me back to is what you'd mentioned in passing about 20 minutes ago, that linear time doesn't feel as strict. Granted, I'm not on a clock anymore, typically, but the idea of, I have lost track of a couple of things where I've, did I do that already? Or have I, does this just feel so natural to what I'm doing that I'm I'm going to start doing that and that's already happened? Is that something that you say kind of in jest for the linear time? Or is that something that you, that you believe truly that it's not, could you tell me about what you meant by that? Mm-hmm. I know I just threw a lot of information at you. Linear time is hard for me. Um, I think we go in and... I, um, I think when a person has had an intimate experience with death, that their experience with time changes. And uh, that there's... I, I tend to think about linear time as being like a piece of elastic, that some moments stretch very very long and other moments go so fast okay? I very much agree and so it time is not the same so thinking about every minute is the same and you know something you were saying about you know I, that you're grateful to be alive um, one of the things that happens for cancer patients typically is when they hear you have cancer the a couple things happen in our heads typically even though they're the docs are still talking you're thinking number one I'm going to die and number two is um maybe they've got the wrong chart (laughs) (laughs) there's got to be a mistake it might not be me yeah. How could, you know, what's what's wrong? There's something wrong with this picture, okay? Because I've only, out of all my years of doing this and the thousands of people I've spoken to, um, only had one person that said to me she knew she was going to have cancer because every person in her family had cancer on both sides of her family. Wow. And she just knew it was a matter of time, and that was really hard. Wow. Um, but everybody else, you know, she's like, I never expected to have cancer. And so... My image of what happens is that 
and this is part of that glass shattering bubble popping that you're talking about is yeah. that you're walking along in life and you think and you know things happen to people like people get sick and have car accidents and people die and there's horrendous things that happen but not to me right we have this protection of bu- this protective bubble for some reason that we don't even think about yeah what i think of in uh, terms of television or or book or anything narrative plot armor you're the main character. Right. Nothing can happen to you. That's right. That's what made Psycho so jarring was that main character, 40 yeah. minutes in, what do we do? Like, yeah. that's that's basic to who we are is telling a story. You're the main continuing piece. How do people deal with that jarring? So I, I think about you're walking in life. And, and were you at the old Saints Stadium where they had the Velcro wall? Yes. And remember the person would put the suit on and they'd jump up on the Velcro wall? Well, so if that was you're walking in life and that's your death and you're Velcroed to your death and all you can think about is your death. And then gradually what happens, and I talk to cancer patients about this all the time, is like, oh, you know what? Here's You didn't wake up dead today, Right. Yeah. Because you're so focused on your death, then you then you begin to realize you start peeling yourself off the Velcro wall of death and go, I'm in life, and I can see my death. Okay. All right? So yeah. I can reflect off my death. And so part of it is how far away is it? You're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. Okay? And what that does for many people, not all, but many people, is it makes life very valuable which is what your friend was talking about, Kevin, I think, if I remember his name, is that he's like, it's that reflection of death. What's different with people that have had transplant or heart attacks or cancer, anything that has the potential to be life-threatening or even, you know, like some of the people that survived the 35W bridge, Mm. it's like I could have died, right? Mm -hmm. It's that the reflection is, is now I see my death. And that, that, that plate of armor that you're talking about, it's gone and you cannot ever get it back. Yeah, I'm no longer invincible. That that safety, that reality. Yep. I am morbidly fascinated by when Hawaii had the the false alarm for the incoming missile. Oh, and yeah. some of the fallout, some of the stories from that have been uh, amazing to hear different reactions of, you know, family that just... They sent out texts to everybody in their family that they could and just accepted it or people that panicked and, you know, grabbed doors and tried to cover themselves in their bathtub or somebody that had said, I'm in Hawaii on vacation on the beach. What what, what more do I want? I'm going to – this is it? All right. This is – like it's <clears> – yeah, it's just – it's noodle baker stuff. Like I just am fascinated by it. Are you – do patients come to you? Are you? Do you seek them out? What typically is the dynamic there? Are doctors referring to you, or is it a personal? I I um, are you a superhero? I've never marketed. I um, they put the bat symbol me. in the sky and you just I, go to where you're needed. Hopefully, it's a heart. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say the death symbol, but that seemed that seemed wrong. Like a scythe, yeah, a good heart that would be good. That would be good. So you just you. So I know lots of. Uh, oncology clinics and um, refer to me and nurses refer to me and I think a lot of people that have had a serious illness because there's now many people that I've worked with that should be dead that aren't 
Yeah. Which is so cool. You know, it's just like we're a big group of people. And so then when one of their friends gets diagnosed, there's like, oh, go talk to Brenda. She's weird, but go talk to her. (laughs) (laughs) She'll ask you about death and then you'll, you know, because I do. It's one of the first things I do is I, I, let's talk about what do you need to do to prepare to die? Yeah. Let's do that. And then that neutralizes that anxiety. Yeah. The, are you talking about the practicality of it, of just what do we need to do to prepare? Does that give it well, a... Well, everybody has a very different list. Sure. Right? But that's a question I ask Yeah. very early on in meeting people is because, you know, it's just like, what if I die? It's like, okay, so well, let's let's explore that. What if you die? What? And I'll typically say, if you're going to die tomorrow or if you're going to die in a week, what is it that you need to finish? What would you not want your loved ones to have to deal with? Because as we know, unfinished business is what causes ghosts. That's why. <laughs> that's, that's always the joke about unfinished business is why people stay. That Yes. Does, does that help people wrap their head around it? Does that give yeah, them Well, some... and I also qualify that, you know, when people uh, talk about my bucket list, mm-hmm. right, and there was that goofy movie, Bucket List, and, you know, they were dying, and they were, you know, these were people with a lot of money. Actually, that is, a Bucket List is about living. Yeah. These are the things I want to explore, and I'm very clear about that. Nobody that's approaching their death says, I want to go to Paris for lunch. Nobody says that. Yeah, what do people want to do commonly? Well, I've heard I need to clean my closets to... Typically, people have like four or five things on their list, and they're not very big. You know, let me do the financial stuff because they're wanting to be respectful of their loved ones, right? So that the that crazy legal stuff can be sidestepped if they've taken care of that. Um, you know, though, it another one like a lot of people want to say goodbye to people. And it's like, well, how do we resolve issues? How do you say goodbye? I talk to them about, you know, here's the four things that are really helpful to say in exchange with each other, um, if not out loud, at least in your heart, so they uh, that person can die well, right? Take care of regrets. Yeah. Regrets, unfinished business, um, being angry, is is uh, creates a very unpleasant ending, right? Good Lord, yeah. And so if you could address those things and help them, so like people are, I want to write letters, I want to say my goodbyes, I'm not going to be there for my daughter's wedding, I want to get something for her that she can have for her wedding. You know, it's just like, okay, let's do that stuff. Yeah. Let's do those things. And then once that list is addressed it's like okay that's great or even just the notation of i want this person to have this thing i want person to have that thing it's like okay so now you can focus a hundred percent of your energy on living yeah it does come up time and again on this podcast that people are not prepared for any of the paperwork that needs to be done or just just literally just have a note in your phone that just says in the event of my untimely passing just basic steps yeah. of just the the most basic qualifications but people don't even want to go that far they don't want to have those conversations and it's been every person that I've talked to about death and dying they've had that same feedback of if you just plan a little bit 
it's not wishing death upon you or anybody else. It's just making it so much easier for other people when having to deal with this because we just, similar to what you said about the medicalization of death, that there's it's it's a phantom zone of business that, you know, I, I don't, I have yet to have the opportunity to really talk to anybody in the funeral business, uh, you know, business side of the funeral industry. But I can't imagine having to thread the needle of being respectful to the person who is in deep mourning and dealing with this massive disruption to the world as they know it and then asking them, well, how much do you have to spend on this when typically people are, the majority of Americans are, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And, yeah, it's... I, you know, I've talked to people about if they, especially about the funeral, because you're talking about when this is what I really work with is all over. Mm-hmm. You know, I call that the messy middle. Yeah. What I do. Um, yeah, it is. It, not to interrupt, but the idea that this is between somebody getting bad news from a doctor or some kind of ominous meeting yeah. and then the actual death itself. Yeah. You're the person dealing with that nebulous area of yeah. what does this mean? Yeah, and how do I walk it? Yeah. That, and with all the people around you and all of their reactions, because, boy, that's a whole nother layer, too. But um, what I will say about the funeral piece is just to say one thing, because if there's nothing said, the, the loved one spent an enormous amount of time, what would that person like or not like or whatever. But if you say one thing, then they know uh, you didn't say anything else, so you're, you're putting it in our hands because it's what makes us feel comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. So... I mean, those are the kinds of things It's that it's those things are easy for me to name because I have walked this path so many times with people. Yeah. Um, and it's so, you know, I can say, you know, in that uh, that messy middle part, it's like, you know, is being kept clean, for example, is that an important thing to you? And I've had people say, are you kidding? That's just critically. Of course, I want to have clean sheets. I want to be kept clean. I've had other people say, you know what? Who cares? I'm dying. What difference does it make? You know? Yeah, that. I mean, you and I talked a little bit about that. And that just really blew my mind. Of what? Once you're dead and gone, what do you have? No, I'm not dis- talking about it. I'm talking about before you die. Oh, you're right. You're right. This is my. Okay, again. see, you're doing what when I was interviewing people and I'd say, what do you believe about death? People wanted to start telling me about their funeral rites. Yeah. Now we're much more comfortable because then it's all done. It's this messy middle that I work in that we're really uncomfortable with. And that's true with the medical community. And that's true for a, a, a lot of people. It's like, how do you walk with somebody that they know that they're going to die? We don't know when. We don't know how their body's going to break down, but they're not dead yet. And, you know, this is the role of the caregiver. They're yeah. in this place and everybody thinks including the patient, I wish I would just die. It'd be a whole lot easier if this was done because this is so, it's nebulous, it's hard, it's difficult. Like some days I'm much more lucid and able to participate and other days I'm not. And my body works sometimes, but not always. And Yeah, it's, I think of it in a way as like, magic eye posters where you have to relax your eye you can't look directly at it and like why am i not seeing the sailboats (laughs) take a step back let your eyes do something they don't normally do and get a secondary look at it it's when i find myself stepping back and trying to look at it through that lens i find that i in my in my own head that i move away from the idea of um 
hospitals and wires and tubes, and I, I find myself really wishing for, uh, <laughs> and I don't know if this is binding to have it on a podcast or what, but uh, um, I should actually ask about that. Um, the idea of a, a peaceful, uh, you know, <laughs> not sterile hospital environment, you yeah. know, whether it's home or it's somewhere quiet and mm-hmm. the idea of not wanting to, yeah, I don't think of a bucket list as like jumping out of a plane and stuff. I would think of it as, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm repeating the stuff you say back just because I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Um, when you deal with these lists or, you know, the notion of what do you want to to accomplish before the end, is forgiveness something people have to work on? Oh, yeah. How do you help people with that? How is forgiveness an impasse? Well, you know, what's interesting is a lot of things that initially what a person becomes aware of is many of the maybe grudges or things they've held on to for a long time immediately evaporate. Yeah. Because they seem so small in comparison. It's like, why did I waste my time and energy on those things? Yeah. Right? Any particular ones that keep coming back up of like, you know, everybody's worried about these dishes. Stop doing all Like, is there any particular... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah a lot of that stuff. Just um, trivial physical I mean, and stuff. that happens. I know that's... <laughs> I have this... So then, you know, there's this whole other category of people that are like myself that are alive that were supposed to be dead that prepared to die and didn't die. And so that changes life, too, that, you know, in a wonderful way, but also that doesn't fit so well in our dominant culture because I, it's um, marketing doesn't work so well. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't really care about what's the uh, right kind of underwear I should be wearing on. I just feel happy I have some. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. This is another pair of pants inside your pants. It's it's what I think of going to Las Vegas that I just, I am not enticed by gambling whatsoever. So like walking through a casino floor with blinking lights, I just think like, oh yeah, for like Superman to walk around in a gunfight. Like I'm I'm fine. This is, it's just not of interest. Yeah. Well, and the same thing for me in terms of of going away, of, you know, getting drunk or doing drugs and just going away. It's just like, I want, I I believe, so here's another one of Brenda's goofy beliefs, but I believe that we're all here for the amount of time that we need to be here in our vessel. Interesting. And so having watched that, uh, as, so if if I can be settled in that I have... The amount of time, like let's say with my kids, that I have the amount of time that I'm going to need to do what I, if you will, came here to do and what I can offer them for their lives and where they go with should they choose the mission of having kids, right? Um, And so that means I really need to show up Hmm. when I'm with them Mm -hmm. because what regrets people have is they look back and they weren't really present with people. Yeah. Because they were thinking about the past or the future, but when they were in that moment, they weren't really there. Yeah. And so then there becomes this awareness of the preciousness of time. Yeah, no amount of money ever bought another second of time, right? Right. You just can't. There's no going back. And so when you're here, let's be here. Yeah.